I'm Gabriel Spitzer, and this is Transmission. As I'm talking to you right now, we are a country wrecked by disease, by economic crisis, and now by tears in the social fabric that have been there all along in the United States, but have become too gaping to ignore once again. How do we think about these twin emergencies, the pandemic and the spasm of grief and anger over racism and police violence? What lessons could history possibly have to teach us about a situation that's this unprecedented? Well, in a bit, we're going to hear a story about race during a pandemic 100 years ago that I think has a lot to say about what it means to be in America right now. But first off, we're going to meet a young woman named Aminata Kamara. She's a senior at Garfield High School in Seattle. And just as this new world of lockdowns and face masks and economic disruption descended on us all, she says a friend of hers was feeling the stress. So Aminata reassured her. It's going to be okay. She was like, no, it's not going to be okay. I said, you just need to like accept or adapt to be like, oh, this is my new normal now. Let me just, let me just accept it. Where does this 20-year-old person get the wisdom and composure to offer that kind of advice? Well, Aminata's originally from Sierra Leone, which struggled with a terrifying outbreak of Ebola for almost two years. So unlike most of us, Aminata can now face the coronavirus pandemic with the knowledge that she's already got one deadly epidemic under her belt. Here's KNKX's Ashley Gross with her story. Aminata was 14 years old when the Ebola virus first arrived in Sierra Leone. That was in the summer of 2014. She was living with her dad and two younger sisters in the capital city, Freetown. Sierra Leone has begun a three-day nationwide lockdown as it confronts a worsening Ebola outbreak. Ebola can kill up to 90% of those who catch it. Highly contagious, its symptoms include vomiting, diarrhea, and internal and external bleeding. It was really scary considering the way, like, the death keeps tolling up. It's, it's like it's... It's wiping away generations. Like if it's, it starts from one mom and then a dad and then the kids and then it just keeps going and going. She says at first people didn't think it was real, but before long it was obvious. People were dying. And just like here, regular life shut down step by step. At first we were like going to school until I think like maybe a month or so that when the death toll keeps increasing, I think that's when the president was like, we have to like stop going to school. Businesses shut down, troops patrolled the neighborhoods. Aminata's dad was strict. He was like, you don't go out, you don't do this, you don't go to neighbors, we don't share cops, we don't, like we're just at home, yeah. In a poor country like Sierra Leone, staying at home is not easy. Not everyone has running water or indoor bathrooms or electricity. Aminata says forget about unemployment benefits. Her father worked at a cement factory, and if he didn't go, they had no income. The government don't provide any food or anything, so people have to go out. People have to like go and work and make money and provide food for their family. So it was hard because everything changed. Her life as a student changed. The education system goes down, and there was a time when the, the, the government started like this radio teaching program. The Tempest by William Shakespeare. 
William Shakespeare spelled capital W I L L. But he wasn't strong because not everyone has this radio. This text is compulsory for all literature in English students. At that time, when some kids should be listening to radio, more other kids are like trying to find something to eat. Life became focused on survival. Aminata says her close family members avoided getting sick, but she knows lots of people who did get it. Some neighbors she was friends with contracted Ebola. It's hard for her to talk about. Their mom started feeling sick and everyone, yeah. It just, like within 24 hours, the whole family sick. And then the the quarantine them and then pick them up. But one week later, everyone's like, there is no one like from that family. Everyone who was staying at that house died from the virus. She says one of the scariest times was when her father got sick. She thought maybe he had Ebola. He was vomiting and had a fever, and she didn't know what to do. If she told people, they would treat her family like pariahs. They would quarantine the whole house or maybe put you in some place with so much chlorine and other things. So it was like that this fear within us. But she was scared of more than just being quarantined. Getting Ebola is like a death sentence. If the dad gets sick, the everyone gets sick. If one person at a house gets sick, it's like everyone gets contaminated with that virus, yeah. So imagine being a teenager. Your father is sick, isolating himself in a room. You're trying to make sure your little sisters have enough to eat. We have to like start rationing food and so I was just trying to like help them in my own little way while I was like, I need someone to help me too. Finally, Aminata says her uncle came and took her dad to the hospital. They were relieved to find out it was not Ebola, it was malaria. She was inspired seeing the nurses and doctors bustling around at the hospital and started thinking she might want to become one of them someday. By late 2015, people in her country got some really great news. Vigils and celebrations on the streets of Freetown as Sierra Leone marks the end of its Ebola outbreak that killed close to 4,000 people in the country. With that Ebola nightmare behind her, Aminata moved to Seattle in December 2018. She came with her dad and one of her sisters to join her stepmom, who was living here. She settled in as a high school student. She started doing running start at Seattle Central College. But then... Uh, good evening, my fellow Washingtonians. Uh, I'd like to speak to you directly tonight about the COVID-19 pandemic. Is it like this virus is like chasing me or what? Because <laughs> when I was in Syria, there was Ebola. Now I'm here and there is coronavirus. So what's happening? Humor helps her cope. She tries to get her dad to lighten up too. She sometimes likes to freak him out as a way to tease him. I told him, I said, um, Dad, did you know that the coronavirus is transmitted now to like the shoes, like under the sole of your shoes? He was like, no, no. <laughs> it was fun, but like I can see that he's traumatized. Like 
It's really wow, good. you're like messing with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like, I'm not only thinking about myself. I have two girls that I have to think about. So it's hard. You will not know that until you have kids. <laughs> Aminata is grateful for things she has here that she did not have during the Ebola outbreak. She's got a phone and internet. She can do classes over Zoom. She has electricity and doesn't have to worry about food. But in some key ways, things are the same. Medical workers are putting their lives on the line to save people. And Aminata still wants to be one of them. My friend was like saying that, um, Aminata with this death, like nurses are dying, doctors, maybe you should do something else. Maybe go into accounting. I'm like, no. This makes me want to do it more now, no. She plans to attend Seattle Central College in the fall. Aminata wants to go into nursing and eventually become a cardiologist. Like all of us, she's looking forward to the day when we've conquered the coronavirus. And maybe that moment will be commemorated with a song, just like people in Sierra Leone celebrated the end of Ebola. Bye-bye, Ebola. We just want to say something to the people then. No vex. Follow me then. Yay! Ha! Nobody wanna see you rising, and when you do, they don't even like it. It will come like they give you license. Don't take many souls go away. That was KNKX's Ashley Gross talking with Garfield High School senior Aminata Kamara. We've been pretty lucky in this country. We haven't had a pandemic like this in, well, a hundred years. But the scourge of influenza back in 1918 is not so remote as you might think. Marianne Mormon is a storyteller, diversity educator, and a longtime civil rights activist. She was not around for the 1918 flu, but she was raised in its aftermath, as well as the aftermath of America's history of racial violence and division. Here's her story. This is a story about three women. My grandmother, Maud, her friend, Lulee, and my mother. And they all were the best cooks, and they cooked greens. My mother taught me how to cook them. You roll them up like a dollar bill, and you slice them on the horizontal to get these small little circles. Now, these three women guide my hands when I'm in the kitchen. I can feel them every time I'm on the cutting board. I feel their love and taste their trauma. Luli and Maud were dead and gone before I was born, but oh, my mother carried them in their heart. They acted like they were on the sofa. She talked to them so much. Oh, Mama said, oh, how I miss my mother. And Luli, Luli was my salvation. This was confusing to me because Luli was black. She was the daughter of a slave. And my mother thought black people had a place and that they should stay in it. But it sounded like Lulee's place was right next to my grandmother Maud. Those two women were born a week apart and they were raised in the same kitchen where Lulee's mother nursed both of them. <laughs> Fed my mother, taught her to walk, taught her how to shell a pecan, taught her how to sing Amazing Grace. A mixed race friendship in the early 1900s in Eatonton, Georgia, was unthinkable. I don't think it was allowed. But I figured my grandparents were, well, they were frayed gentry. They never recovered from the war or the fall of cotton in the South. 
And so they were so concerned with themselves, they didn't notice that their daughter was out under a oak tree with the daughter of the cook. Mama said they used to stay there and tell each other their dreams, tell their stories, and share a little sweet nectar of honeysuckle. Drop it right on the tongue. Luli's dream was to be a nurse. When she learned that Luli didn't get to go to school very often, Luli had to be in the kitchen. She had to work on the sharecropper farm. Well, it just made Grandmother mad. So she would come on home from school with her little McDuffie's reader. As soon as nobody was looking, she'd shoo Luli out the back door and they'd run behind the vines on the live oak tree. And Grandmother Maud taught her her letters taught her how to read, taught her how to do sums. They were good friends. Last March 2020, I'm standing at the stove, stirring up all these memories, and I do not know how my diminutive, dignified grandmother became so defiant. And she was defiant, at least in two of the stories my mother told. Now, the first one was when the Jewish people in Georgia, in Eatonton, didn't have enough Jews to be in the choir. So they asked my grandmother, who had a beautiful voice, and was going to sing. Well, my grandfather didn't want her to. No, you can't go down with the Jewish people and sing. Well, my grandfather didn't know that the Lord wanted my grandmother to do this, and she took Luli, and off they went, walked on to the synagogue outside of town, and she sang. The second time was after World War One, and the soldiers were coming home, and a lot of them were sick with the Spanish flu. And my grandmother didn't like that they were left on the streets and not being taken care of. So she asked Luli to go with her to the makeshift hospital in the church basement. Well, the Red Cross had run out of white nurses, and so they were allowing black women to come in and do some nursing duty. Everything was limited. Grave diggers were in short supplies, so were doctors. My grandfather didn't want her to go at all, thought it was dangerous. He'd drink bourbon on the porch. My mother would sit on the stairs and wait, and Luli and Grandmother Maud would come up the hill at night after they'd worked in the basement. Mama said that once, Luli was helping one of the fevered, coughing soldiers, blood running out of his nose, and he rose up in the fevered state and and tossed her, just hit her, said, I don't want any colored person touching me. Well, the man was practically delirious. He didn't know it was Luli who was holding his hand. My grandmother giving him his last sip of water as he slipped away. Turned October chilly in Georgia that year, 1919. Luli had to help Grandmother home, helped her up the stairs. She got into bed. Luli helped her, took care of her, and the cough rose like flames in a fire igniting and got worse. My mother stood in the doorway as Luli held her hand and Mother waved goodbye. They had to wait for the grave digger. Mama didn't get to go to the funeral. They thought it was dangerous, and funerals were only 15 minutes long at that time. They didn't, they didn't have time. My grandfather really started drinking after that, although my mother never, ever would call him an 
an alcoholic or a drunk, but she also never would let us have liquor in the house. He fired Lou Lee, said he didn't have any money. Right after that, he, he flipped over a car, Model T Ford, rolled it right over with my mother in it. She didn't learn to drive until, until I did. But she cried. She cried the first 13 years of my life and told me how Lou Lee came back to take care of her. Lily had to work during the day, but at night she'd cook for my mother. She'd sew her clothes and cut her hair. And when Mama graduated from high school, it was Lily standing in the schoolyard to congratulate her. Mama was valedictorian of her class, but she didn't get to go to college. She had to go to work, take care of her father. But Lily got to be a nurse. She went to the Negro College. My mother got the vapors. I think that was the term at the time for depression or PTSD. They didn't have those words. She laid on the sofa. She cried. She talked about Lulee. She talked about her mother. And she talked so much about it, I almost drowned in her memories. I was a kid. I couldn't make Mama happy. But I carried her grief until it became my own. Standing at the stove after Seattle went into shelter because of the COVID, I was stirring memories in boiling water and realized I was, I was shaped by a pandemic. I began my life in a pandemic. I never escaped a pandemic and have lived to live through one myself. I have these photographs on my dresser. My grandmother, and she's got her delicate chin resting on her gloved hand. And next to her is my 10-year-old mother. And you can see those sad eyes. You can see that look in her face. I have no photo of Lulee. I don't know her last name or where she's buried. But I found a cookbook of my mother's, and I took out the most beautiful bouquet of collards and I framed it. I put Lulee's collards right in the middle of this trinity of women who taught me how to cook. Though sometimes I salt my collards with tears. So can you just tell me a little bit about what it feels like to tell that story in this time and place where we're confronting another pandemic and we're in this new paroxysm of anguish over racism? I started thinking about the story in February 2020. It's Black History Month. It's always Black History Month in February. And I was thinking about this unusual friendship that I never quite understood how it happened. And then all of a sudden, a few weeks later, it wasn't the friendship so much I was thinking about. It was a friendship in a pandemic. And I'm standing at the stove, and I realize how much they are part of my life and how I was really shaped by a pandemic that happened at the turn of another century in 1918. And I started thinking, what are, what are kids going to think today if I was so touched by the memory told to me by another person. What in the world are these children going to think who are experiencing it? Because that's what, my, you know, my mother was 10 years old when this happened. And it, 
She never recovered. Never recovered. Could you tell me a little bit about your own history with civil rights? I grew up in Virginia from a small town, Windy Gap Mountain. My mother wanted to upscale us, so she moved us into the city of Roanoke. And she got us into private school at a time where the way Virginia was going to fight integration was to take public dollars and give it to children to go to private schools if they were going to have to go to school with a person who was black. I didn't understand why my father thought this was so wrong, but slowly began to understand it so that by the time I was in school, where we genuflected at the bronze statues of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, Jeb Stewart, and the Klan was marching and making these horrible sounds, beating on garbage cans. I went to Washington, D.C. I watched the crosses that were burning in Richmond, and I began doing voter registration. And when I was doing voter registration, of course I was working with people who were black, and I came back to our little our little location in the Episcopal Church there, and there was smoke, and there was fire, and fire trucks. And the man I had been doing voter registration with had been, he died. The building was set on fire. And I began to work with civil rights. Much later in Seattle, I uh, was a consultant in cultural diversity and worked with city of Seattle and it's really understandable why people are, who are black do not want to educate us anymore. They're exhausted. And during the civil rights movement, they did do a lot of teaching. I remember being sitting in a church. They would teach us about what it meant to be a peaceful protest, what it meant to not fight back and what that was going to But we did role plays where actually they did cover us in, in catch-up and I had to do a whole lot of educating. And then we marched and we demonstrated and you think that's going to be over. You know, that was one of the problems with those of us who were raised in the 60s. We checked things off. We got affirmative action in. Okay, civil rights is on the way. We Brown versus the Board of Education. Got that passed. Okay, that's happening. Moving on. What we didn't know was how quickly all of those things could change. When those people who did not want those changes came back to power, and it also is important for this generation, for the next generation, to realize this is your march. And you may be doing it digitally. You may be doing it on the streets. But if you don't do it with love in your heart, you won't be heard. Yeah. Um, I wonder if anti-racism feels uh, different now where there are fewer overt signs of the KKK-style cross-burning and we're really starting to understand more about how racism is institutionalized, how it's systemic, how it's systems of power, and not only individuals who have bad beliefs. Yeah. In the South, in the 60s, we had, well, we didn't exactly understand racism until the civil rights movement, and then it was you were marching or you were not marching. And then I come to Seattle, and we're polite. We're politely racist. But there's still, if you see two black people in the hallway, if you're white, you got nervous. And now, I don't think moderate white liberals can have this fence post where we stand 
balancing, well, we'd like people to be nice. There's a correct way to protest. When the very essence and meaning of protest, there's not a right way to do it. The other thing that I think we are learning from the burning of America, and again, you know, there's an African proverb, if the village doesn't take care of the children, the children will burn the village to feel its warmth. Well, it's understandable, but we can't burn our own house. If we use what we have of democracy to take our bully vote, it could help us be a little closer to each other. And I hope that happens. I hope. That was storyteller and advocate Marianne Mormon. She lives in Kingston, Washington. She first told the tale at the Seattle Storytelling Series Fresh Ground Stories at a virtual event in May. Please consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find stories like these. Thank you. Transmission is produced by the staff of KNKX, including Posey Gruner, Jennifer Wing, and Kevin Kniestead. Special thanks this week to Ashley Gross, Paul Currington of Fresh Ground Stories, and Kari Plog. Our executive producer is Florangela Davila. I'm Gabriel Spitzer. I'll catch you next time on Transmission. <laughs>